0: As Albert said, um, my name is Sam, and I have the uh, privilege of preaching to you today. For those of you keeping score, I do have my shirt untucked, so that's one more in the shirt untucked uh, category of preachers here at uh, at Trinity Grace. Um, Would you please uh, join me for a quick uh, word of prayer? Lord, we just pray that you would um, would be renewing our minds this morning by the preaching of your word, dear Lord, and we pray that. Uh, You would soften our hearts to hear uh, the gospel, the good news, dear Lord, that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. As we've been working our way through Colossians, the Apostle Paul has been building an argument that has led us to the verses for today. He has been tying together a string of truths, great gospel truths about Christ and about us that has brought us to these verses. I'd like to take a moment to trace that string back to its origin, because without that string, without understanding how we've gotten here, a cursory reading of this text can sound like outright moralism, merely an ethical to-do list for the upstanding citizen. If the beautiful strands of the gospel that Paul has been weaving together so far in Colossians do not hold and provide the structure upon which this text is built, it would collapse into legalism like a house of cards." We can trace Paul's argument back into the first chapter of Colossians. In particular, Paul goes into a beautiful soliloquy in which he outlines the supremacy of Christ above all things. Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, so that, as it is written above me here, he might be... In all things, he might be preeminent. In Christ, the fullness of our sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, holy, loving God was pleased to dwell and to reconcile all things to himself by his blood on the cross. In the second chapter of Colossians, Paul moves on to his first imperative, the first direction or command that he has for believers, which is that in light of the supreme Christ reconciling all things to himself, we are to walk in Christ being rooted and built up in him, and doing all by faith. Paul continues in chapter 2 with an indicative, a description of who we are as Christ's body, the church. He says that while we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, we have been forgiven. Our debt has been nailed to the cross, and we, having been buried with Christ in baptism by our faith, are also a people who have been raised to new life with our resurrected Savior. This leads into chapter 3 that Albert preached on last week, in which Paul says that since we have been raised with Christ, since we have died to our sin and are hidden with Christ, we are to seek and set our minds on the things which are above, which, I put to you, is nothing more than to have that very faith that Paul has been referring to throughout Colossians and to seek to live as a people who have that faith. Regarding faith, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher had this to say, Faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be, and that he will do what he has promised to do, and then expect this of him. We are to believe all of what we have read so far in Colossians, that Christ is the very image of the Creator God, that he loves us, his bride, the church, that he has reconciled us to himself by his blood on the cross. We are to expect him to be faithful to us, working all things for our good, and we are to hold fast to the promise that he will raise us to glory with him in the last days when all things are made new. Now, before the pragmatists amongst us get flustered, I did say that Paul's argument thus far was not that we are a people who merely have faith, but that we are a people who are also to live out that faith. We are not called to just understand and believe in Christ and his promises, but we are to actually live out the consequences of that belief in our very normal, mundane, day-to-day lives, and we are to live out that belief as a church family together. While it is absolutely and necessarily true that we are saved by faith alone in Christ, saving faith is never alone. There are practical consequences to faith in Jesus, practices we are to adopt and sins we are to eschew that God has called us to as a people of faith. Which brings us to our text for today, in which Paul is tackling several aspects of how believers are to live out their faith in Jesus. Now it has come to my attention that uh, some of us in our congregation like having um, outlines. I won't say uh, who it was who drew my attention to this and uh, I won't take credit for this rough outline. Uh, Neither will I give credit. Um, But for those of us who are like Albert, I would like to highlight four (laughs) points that Paul makes in our text that you can keep an eye out for to help you follow along. Put to death, put into perspective, put away, and put on together. So keep an eye out for these because they'll they might sneak up on you here. As Matt preached two weeks ago, Paul was writing a letter to deal with the issues that the church in Colossae was facing. Now the issues that the church that uh, the church was facing that Matt covered seem to have arisen because the false teachers. Uh, that had entered the church there were teaching aestheticism, angel worship, religious observance of holidays, and dietary practices, as though these were a means of obtaining righteousness. These practices Paul condemns as having only the appearance of wisdom, while in reality doing nothing to curb the sinful nature of the flesh. The sins that Paul addresses in verses 5 and 8 may very well have been the specific sins over which these false religious practices were powerless. We are told, in verse 5, to put to death therefore. And the therefore here is tying back into all of Paul's prior argument throughout Colossians. We are told to put to death what is earthly in you. We should note the contrast that exists between what is earthly, that which we are to put to death, and that which is above, the heavenly things, upon which we have been told, in verse 2 of this chapter, to set our minds. The heavenly things are the things of God, the person of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, but the earthly things are the things that are not of God, the weaknesses we repeatedly indulge, the practices that interfere with our genuine worship of God, the sins that we continue to commit." A more literal translation is actually that we are to put to death the members which are on the earth. Now, throughout the New Testament, Paul uses the analogy of a body that is made of many members. Likewise, Paul here is saying that these sins are part of our bodies, since our very flesh bears the consequence of mankind's fall in Adam. These sins are the things our bodies respond to with fleeting satisfaction that send pleasure signals to our brains. Now, since they are rooted so far down in the programming of our flesh, we should not expect these sins to be easy to defeat, which is why Paul uses such strong language here, put to death. Paul doesn't say that we are to have some vague desire to overcome these sins eventually, after we've satisfied our flesh sufficiently. Maybe when God finally turns the switch for us and we no longer desire them. No, believer, since we have died to the spirits of the world, to the power of sin, we are, to use a euphemism, to take these earthly desires out back and put a bullet in them today. Paul provides five specific sins here in verse five that outline to us a general category of sexual sins that we must put to death. Interestingly enough, Paul's original audience, as we've established, were Greeks in Colossae, who, whether by influence of Gnostic teaching that had entered the church or because of the Greek culture itself, would have seen no problem at all in indulging in almost any form of sexual satisfaction, even with other members within the church. This brazen pursuit of sexual pleasure is not unlike our modern culture today. It is almost as though Paul were writing to Toronto, Ontario, 2019, when he condemns the obsession with sex. Just look at the content of the magazines at the checkouts of our grocery stores. Look at the parades that march through our streets, and think about how many people, even amongst your own circle of friends, perhaps in your own household, and perhaps you here today, struggle simply being alone in front of a computer screen. Yes, our society is quite similar to that of the Colossian church. The five sins Paul lists are, Sexual immorality, which comes from the Greek word porneia, from which the word that we all are familiar with, pornography, comes. Impurity, which refers to any kind of moral corruption and is often, as is the case here, applied to sexual sins. Third, lust. And fourth, evil desire. Desire, upon which the scripture writer James wrote in his letter, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And finally, the fifth sin that Paul lists here, covetousness, or greed. Looking for more and more sexual pleasure, which, as Paul says here, is idolatry. It is, in fact, idolatry that is the root of all the sins listed here. Idolatry is simply looking outside of God for satisfaction, whether that be appealing to some graven image to bring the rain so that you and your family don't starve, or whether that is looking to the next sexual experience to fill up what is lacking in your life. Now, Paul isn't limiting the scope of sexual sins here to just these five, but he is saying that you can use any word you want for it, whatever your particular sexual proclivity might be. But any form of sexual immorality is nothing less than idolatry. It is nothing less than pursuing your own selfish earthly satisfaction instead of pursuing true satisfaction that is found only in God. Paul echoes this verse in his letter to the Ephesians, saying, "For you may be sure of this: that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, or who is covetous, excuse me that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those who continue in sexual sin, who pursue the pleasures of the flesh at the expense of relationship with Christ, are cut off from Christ. This is why we are to put these sins to death. There are miraculous stories of God granting believers immediate victory over habitual sin. But if all you are doing is waiting for God to work this instantaneous miracle, you don't understand the life that you have been raised to with Christ. Albert preached this last week. We have died to sin and we are hidden with Christ in God. He has granted us the Holy Spirit who is already in us, transforming us and by whom we have the ability to withstand any temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with, all temptation, but with the temptation he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10:13. The Spirit of God is reforming our thoughts, our desires, and our affections. He is aligning our will to the Father's will and shaping us into the image of Christ, and we are to respond to and cooperate with his redeeming power within us. This is how we are to put to death our earthly flesh. You may ask what this response, what this cooperation with the Holy Spirit looks like. I would encourage you to look to the example of Christ, who was tempted in every respect as we are, and yet was without sin. Before the outset of his ministry, Christ went into the desert and fasted there for 40 days. When Satan came and tempted him with food, Christ responded with Scripture saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Then Satan took Christ to the top of the temple and tempted him with immediate glory if Jesus would but jump, so that he would be carried aloft by the angels of God and his power would be seen by all around. But Christ responded again with scripture, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, Satan took Christ to the top of of a mountain and tempted him with all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would but worship Satan. And again, Jesus responded with scripture, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then finally the devil left him. I don't have time to delve into how difficult it must have been for Christ to be hungry and tempted with food, to know that he would have to suffer for sinners and to be tempted with a shortcut to glory, and to know that he would have to die to purchase a people for himself and to be tempted with all the peoples of the world. But if Christ, the Son of God, in these moments relied on the Word of God, who are we to rely on anything else? The Bible is the very breath of God, His own Word. We should be a people who love the Word, who study the Word, who dwell on the Word, and who memorize the Word, so that our first response to temptation comes not from our own fallen nature, but from the mouth of God. The first weapon we have to put sin to death is the Bible, a very sharp sword indeed. We can also think of the temptation to flee, to save Himself that Christ must have had on the Mount of Olives when He knew that He was shortly to be captured scourged, and crucified. But rather than giving in and saving himself, rather than abandoning his disciples and his mission from the Father, we read that when when he came to the Mount of Olives, he said to his disciples, pray that you do not give in to temptation. And Jesus withdrew and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not give in to temptation. Do you pray as Christ did, as he was commanding the disciples to pray? Or do you, like the disciples who gave in to their sleep, give in to your flesh? Look to Christ, Pray for the will of the Father to be done in your life, and pray that you would not give in to temptation. Pray that he would strengthen you to put your sin to death. Now Paul gives us a reason why it is so important to put sin to death, something that puts his command into perspective. Returning to our text this morning, lest the Colossians, or we here today, doubt the seriousness of these sexual sins, we are told in verse 6 that it is because of these sins that the wrath of God is coming. Sexual immorality, which might seem perfectly normal in our culture at large, which might even be spoken of at the water cooler at work, actually offends holy God. God has designed and blessed human sexuality to be between one man and one woman in the marriage bed. Anything else is an affront to his perfect design. Sexual immorality angers God. It is evil and it warrants his wrath. The wrath of God is a topic that we tend to avoid discussing almost as if we are embarrassed that God would punish those who practice evil. And yet the Bible is full of references to the wrath of God. In fact, in the second chapter of the first book of the Bible, God promises judgment to Adam and Eve should they, re- should they disobey him. We also read in Scripture, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." We could also discuss God's wrath by talking about His interactions with the Egyptians, how He punished the disobedience of Israel, the flood in the days of Noah, the destruction of the Tower of Babel, the sacrificial system that required a penalty of blood, and on, and on, and on. Despite this, there is a movement nowadays amongst Christians that says, yes, that was how God revealed Himself in the Old Testament, but Christ's ministry was characterized by His love, meekness, and mercy. So we can more or less dismiss that stuff about God's wrath and focus on the love of God. In fact, one of the most popular Christian novels of our time, The Shack, which has been made into a major motion picture, uh, promotes this exact view. The character intended to represent God the Father unambiguously denies having any wrath towards sinners, saying, I don't need to punish people for their sin. Sin is its own punishment devouring you from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish it, it's my joy to cure it. But Christ himself, who is God in the flesh, perhaps more than anyone else in Scripture, stressed the wrath of God towards unrighteousness and the eternal punishment that awaits them. Jesus doesn't only reference hell, he describes it in great detail. He says it is a place of eternal torment, of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, and from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones. He calls hell a place of outer darkness, comparing it to Gehenna, which was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem, where rubbish burned and maggots abounded. If God is love, as we read in John 1, or 1 John, for example, and God is wrathful towards sin, as we've seen this morning, we seem to be in a, con- in a quandary. How do we reconcile the love of God with his wrath-, wrath towards sinners? If you hear nothing else from me today, hear this. It was Jesus on the cross who reconciled the just wrath of God towards sin with his abundant love and grace towards his chosen people. God loved us so much that he sent his son Christ to bear the sins of the world on himself in his crucifixion, and he received the full measure of God's wrath for those sins, so that any who call on Christ and confess him as Lord will receive the forgiveness bought with his blood. This is why Paul was able to praise God for Jesus, saying, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Romans 5.9, and also... For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's from 1 Thessalonians 5.9 as well. Paul's argument here then is that as followers of Christ, saved from the wrath of God by his grace in providing Jesus as a savior, we are to respond to that grace by putting sin to death. To further emphasize his point that we are to condemn the sins that once but no longer defined us, Paul says in verse 7, In these, and he's talking about these sins, in these sins you too, you yourselves, or you indeed, once walked when you were living in them. He continues, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Having addressed sexual sin, Paul now moves on to another form of sin. That is, again, very common within the church today. Another type of sin that can destroy the community of the church, sins of speech. Impure anger, unjust wrath, and malice create a certain disposition in the heart, an ill will that leads to slander, lies, and shameful conversation, which have no place in the body of believers, or anywhere else for that matter. Christ himself said that when that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. In the book of Proverbs, says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. If our hearts overflow the grace of the gospel, they can bring encouragement, joy, and peace. But if we do not put away our sin, if we allow anger, wrath, and malice to fester in our hearts, we will become petty, vengeful, slanderous, bitter, demeaning, lying gossips the bible tells us to deal with these emotions before they become sinful in ephesians for example we are told be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger this might mean dealing with your anger through prayer reading scripture consulting with a friend and it might mean reconciling to the person who offended you but however you do it do it quickly so that this the sin does not take root Because Christ also warned that you will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Notice here in verse 8 how Paul has slightly modified his imagery of condemning one's own sin from verse 5. While in verse 5 we were told to put sin to death, here we are told to put sin away. It is as though our sins are some dirty garment weighing us down twisting our hearts, preventing us from enjoying the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. The phrase put away reminds us of what we read several weeks ago in Colossians 2, where Paul reminds the church that they have put off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. By using the phrase, this, uh, by using the phrase put away, we remember how the dirty robes that were worn before baptism were exchanged for fresh clean robes when the believer emerged from the water. The washed believer would have looked a fool wearing filthy clothing. And so we too, who have been washed by the sacrificial blood of Jesus, have no business continuing in, in the garments of our sin. Paul continues in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." Just as we saw how Paul had been weaving a string of gospel truths together as he built an argument through the first several chapters of Colossians that leads to and supports our text this morning, we see here exactly how Paul is rooting everything in verses 5 to 11 into that argument. His argument, again as a refresher, is that we are a people of faith who are called to live out that faith. Paul here is providing the justification behind all the behavioral commands he listed earlier, and he roots them in our faith. The reason we have to put to death sexual sin and put away sins of speech is that we have already, by faith, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Paul here is presenting the dichotomy between what we have already moved past by faith and what we have moved into in Christ. Throughout the New Testament, we have many comparisons between the old and the new. In Ephesians, Paul tells the church to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And in Romans we read, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So our old self belongs to our body of sin, our former manner of life, enslaved to sin under the curse of the fall. If we look back into Genesis, God warned Adam, the first man, against eating the fruit of one particular tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told Adam that there would be consequences if he ate the fruit, and that the punishment for disobeying his command was death. God is holy, and he cannot tolerate sin. Nevertheless, Adam rebelled against God and ate the fruit, and sin entered the world. And were it not for his mercy staying his hand, God would have been absolutely just in condemning Adam to death at that very moment. But instead, he drove Adam and Eve from the garden, away from his holy presence. It is because of Adam's fall that all his children, all of us, are born under the curse of the fall, separated from God by our sin, children of wrath by the very nature of the flesh that links us to our forefather Adam. But even as God was driving Adam and Eve from the garden, he was gracious and made a covenant, a promise to Adam and to all mankind, that he, God, would not abandon them to sin and death, but that he would ultimately conquer sin and Satan through the offspring of the woman, the man we now know to be Jesus Christ, the very image and fullness of God himself. It is because of Christ who bore the punishment, the death we deserved under the curse of sin, that we have been reconciled to God. Our old self, our body of sin, has been crucified with Christ. He has freed us, lifted us from the curse of the fall to righteousness and holiness. And it is because Christ conquered sin and death as seen by his resurrection which we celebrated last Sunday Easter that we can walk in newness of life alive to God this is what Paul is referring to when he says that we have put put on Christ and his power over sin excuse me this is what Paul is referring to when he says we have put on the new self we have taken off our identity in Adam cursed by the fall apart from God and by faith have put on Christ In Christ, we have broken away from the curse. Sin and death no longer rule over us. And yet, even though sin no longer rules over us, we are still tempted. Even though we have put on the new self in Christ, we are still influenced by the old fallen realm as we live in bodies that have yet to be fully redeemed. This is why Paul reminds us in the end of verse 10 that we need to be renewed in the knowledge after the image of the new self's creator. Because we are tempted to sin, we need to be constantly preaching the victory of Christ to ourselves. Because we are at war with our flesh, we must perpetually look to the example of Jesus, our Savior, who was without sin. Do not be conformed to this world, but look to Christ, and be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We must look to Christ so that we do not lose heart, even though our outer self is wasting away we must look to Christ to renew our inner self day by day. This isn't to say that we are, that since we are renewing our minds, that our bodies are therefore some disposable container for our inner self, a vessel that we can use in whatever way we see fit. No, we are to live in the flesh by faith in Christ, which is the very reason we are told earlier not to dabble in sexual sins and sins of speech. Which brings us, at last, to verse 11, where we are told that here, in the new self, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. And so it is here that we find that the new self is more than just an individual new self. It is a new humanity, a collection of new selves, if you will in which the distinctions of this world are irrelevant, a recreation of fallen humanity into the image of its creator. This new corporate self, this new body, is to be made up of many members, dead to sin but hidden in Christ, and is to be known as the church. Some of the distinctions that Paul notes here would have been much more relevant to the church in Colossae in the first century than they are to us today. Paul often contrasted Jews, the small tribe descended from Abraham, whom God distinguished as his chosen people to be a light to the world. And Greeks, the non-Jews, whose culture not only dominated the Mediterranean in the first century, but who also clashed with the Jews on a fundamental level. Greek culture as a whole was morally liberal, while the Jews were very conservative. The Greeks believed in a plethora of capricious and petty gods, while the Jews upheld the faith passed down to them of the one true, holy creator God. Likewise, the New Testament also frequently contrasts the circumcised, those who had their foreskin removed, as a sign that they were set apart from the world, who bore that physical mark as a sign of their people's special relationship with God, and the uncircumcised, a derogatory term used by the Jews to reference pagans who rejected and fought against God. The next two distinctions, barbarian and Sidian, are unique to Paul's letter to the Colossians and are subsets of people within the uncircumcised. The term barbarian was actually an onomatopoeia used by the Greeks to mock the way non-Greeks spoke. Apparently it sounded like bar-bar-bar to them, and implies that those who weren't Greek were inferior, were less sophisticated than the Greeks. Scythians were from a region just north of the Black Sea that was thought to have been the epitome of savagery and unrefinement. The first-century Jewish historian Josephus even spoke of them, saying, "Sidians, who delight in murdering people, and are little better than wild beasts." The slave and free social dichotomy is one that has, that had direct relevance to the early church, since slavery was perfectly legal at the time, and we know from Scripture that there were even master-slave relationships within the church. So what Paul is saying is that these distinctions—Greek, Jew circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, are irrelevant when compared with the new self. When compared to the unity of believers within the church, there is no distinction that matters. It doesn't matter if you come from a religious background or a secular background. It doesn't matter if you perceived yourself as a moral person before coming to Christ or not. It doesn't matter where you're from, what people you trace your lineage to, what your social or economic status is. None of this matters because all within the church have put on Christ, who is all and who is in all. Within the church, it does not matter if you are in the minority or if you are in the majority. It doesn't matter if your ancestors were slave owners or if your ancestors were persecuted by the ancestors of someone sitting in the pew next to you. Because you are both, first and foremost, sinners saved by the same grace through the through the same faith in Christ. To echo the Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, you have all brought nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. We are to identify each other first as fellow believers in Christ, bearing his image, having put on the new self as members of his church. It is important to note that while these distinctions within the body of believers are subject to the new self, they are not obliterated by it. Rather, they are put into context for the church, as we will see later on in this chapter in the coming weeks. To quote one commentator, Jews are still Jews in Christ, Gentiles are still Gentiles in Christ, slaves are still slaves in Christ, but these earthly identities are no longer what is most important. Solidarity in Christ is now the ruling principle for the new community. Please join me in prayer as I close. Lord. We have seen that it is because of your great love and mercy that you sent your son Jesus to bear your wrath on the cross in our place, to reconcile us to you. And it is this same Jesus who conquered sin and death that we confess by faith to be our Lord and Savior. We pray that we would be a people who live out that faith in Christ. We ask that you would not lead us into temptation, but that you would deliver us from evil. We pray that you would renew our minds in the knowledge of Christ, the object of our faith, as we recognize our new identity in him. We pray that you would grant us unity. Please provide unity to our, your church, your bride, as we seek to be your people, a light on a hill in the city of Toronto. We also pray that you would show mercy to those listening here today who don't have faith in Christ Jesus, that you would grant them repentance, that they would believe and trust in him for their salvation. Amen.